1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to sign up and you'll get extended episodes each and every week and lots of other bonus goodies and special films as well. Volume 2 of our Fireside Conversation series has just come out actually, Robin and Professor Chris Lintop talking about the night sky, Around a Campfire in Northampton and... The ISS passes over at one point. You can check that out if you're a Patreon supporter. And a reminder that this weekend, if you are listening to this episode on the day it's released, is Nine Lessons for Spring, our postponed Christmas Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People shows. April 16 and 17, Saturday and Sunday night at King's Place in London, hosted by Rob and lots of special guests, including Lucy Green and Matt Parker and Jim Bob and Soft Lad and Mark Richards and Miranda Lowe and... Lots more tickets are still available. Uh, you should be able to get some on the door or you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash lessons Hope to see some of you there. Someone who will definitely be there is our special host for this week's episode, our own Dr. Helen Chersky. Our guest today is Patrick radden author of The Acclaimed Empire of Pain, which, amongst other things, won the prestigious Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction last year and one of the judges on the panel for that award last year was dr helen chersky so we've handed the reins of book shambles over to helen for this week's episode as she chats to patrick about her favorite book of 2021 empire of pain here is helen
2: Hello and welcome to this episode of Book Shambles. I'm Helen Chersky and today we're going to be talking about a fabulous book and it really is. It's deservedly won a huge amount of praise in the year since it was published, uh, including winning the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction in 2021, and I know that because I was on the judging panel, and it was also shortlisted for the Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year, and it picks apart the history and actions of one family, the Sackler family, and how their public persona as generous and humane patrons of the arts sits in really horrifying contrast with the source of their wealth which was prescription opioids and the book is empire of pain and it's a real pleasure to have the author patrick rad keith joining us on Book Shambles. so patrick hello
3: hey it's so good to be with you
2: i oh, it's been a year since this book was published so you've probably done a lot of these interviews by now i how how what sort of reactions has the book been getting because it was such a big story and it's not just that the book itself is an achievement but also the ideas in it you know were new to a lot of people I think or was sort of hadn't been laid out in that amount of detail what what's the what's it been like sort of retelling this story for a year in the interviews after the book was published
3: it's been fascinating I mean it's um you know the book came out in the states um in April and the Sackler story was quite a big story here and has been just in the last few years. Um, but I, I don't think that it had been told in quite this way as a, as a kind of a family saga, looking back over three generations of the family. And so I think there, there was a, a reaction that a lot of people had which was just to kind of get drawn into the, just the drama of the story. But then of course there's an outrage that people feel. And that was one of the strange things is I think, you know, you, you write a book, you want it to be a pleasurable experience for people. Um, you want them to to uh, feel as though they're, you know, they, they're happy they spent the time. And, and what I keep hearing from people is that they have this kind of s- slow boil that just intensifies of indignation as they read. And then having it come out in the UK has been really interesting because one of the strange things about the Sackler family is that they... The story is more well-known over here in the States because of the opioid crisis and so forth. But in fact, there's this big branch of the Sacklers who are based in and around London. Um, And yet it hadn't really caught up with them in, in a significant way in the UK because I think there was less awareness of the opioid crisis in the US and less awareness that there was this big wealthy family that had given all this money to different institutions in the UK. So it's been fascinating since it came out there to see people, I think, kind of waking up to the idea that one of the great... Philanthropic families in Great Britain uh, has made so much of its money through this public health crisis that has killed so many people.
2: I think I think that's exactly right, and it is something that you know. People's only contact with their name, as I guess, even for people in America, was through you know you walked into a museum and there was a little plaque on the wall that said, "Funded by the Sackler Foundation." Right, and it was just this word that kind the of, Sackler was just this kind of word that followed you around cultural institutions almost, and then suddenly it had a, a meaning. Well, um, so let's so let's um just because that people in the UK might not be quite as familiar with 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 the background here, just tell us briefly a little bit about the opioid crisis first, and then we'll come to the Sackler family.
3: Yeah, sure. So the so when we talk about the opioid crisis, it's really a, a quite complex public health crisis that has unfolded over about a quarter of a century now, primarily in the U.S., though there have been aspects of this in other countries as well. And it really started in the mid-1990s uh, with an, the introduction of this drug OxyContin, which was a powerful opioid painkiller. So when I say opioid, I mean derived from the opium poppy And up to that point, uh, opioids had been reserved by doctors for quite severe cases. They would use them for cancer pain or end-of-life care. But there was a concern that these drugs could be quite addictive. So they were miraculous at at easing pain, but also that they could be quite addictive. And OxyContin sort of changed the game. There was a, a, a new way of selling it by this company, Purdue Pharma, in which they argued, actually, this should be used for moderate pain, you know, tens of millions of people should take this drug, and don't worry, it's not actually addictive, all those fears are overblown. So that turned out not to be true, and you had a generation of people who became hopelessly addicted to OxyContin, and then eventually uh, the the crisis shifts and becomes more of a heroin crisis as people start migrating to a, a chemical cousin, a black market chemical cousin of OxyContin, which is heroin, and then eventually to fentanyl, which is even more deadly and can be made purely synthetically, um, and is really the main driver of the crisis today. So over the last 25 or so years, this crisis has killed more than half a million people in the States. And the estimates today are that there there may be as many as 2 million Americans who have an opioid use disorder who are addicted in one way or another to these drugs. So it's a huge, severe... Uh, public health epidemic, really. That's been kind of in the last couple of years. It's been sort of in the background of COVID, but it hasn't slowed down at all. In fact, it's intensified. Um, and part of what my book is about, and what drew me to this story, is that that company, Purdue Pharma, which was really the instigator of the crisis, is a privately held company, and it's owned by this family, the Sacklers.
2: So that, uh, yeah, and I think that one of the one of the real strengths of the of the book, I think, is that in a way it's very easy to get very upset about the public health crisis. If you read the stories of people who are addicted and who've lost family members, you know, it's very, very easy to get sucked into that. But also it's also, it's partly that the the horrendousness of that almost draws attention away from the people responsible because it feels, it feels like you're not looking at the most important people because the most important people are the ones who are suffering, but then behind it, there's this pattern. So then we come to the Sackler family and and this is a, I think one of the interesting questions about all this, which we will get to, is is whether it's a, these were particularly evil people or whether this is really a system failing. But we'll get to that. So the the Sacklers, this starts, just give us a quick run through the, the, the generations. There's kind of three generations in the book.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, before I do, though, I should just because I, it's, I resonate so strongly with it, I should pick up on one thing you said, which is that the, you know, I think as a writer, there are these questions about... What is my optic? What, you know, what's the aperture going to be? How am I going to look at a particular problem? And there is a, um, I think there's a, a very good and an, an important desire, particularly these days, to think about victims, to center victims in a narrative, um, and. It's interesting because sometimes you'll have, I mean, for instance, here where we have these mass shootings all the time, a lot of the time the press will quite deliberately not even mention the name of the shooter because they don't want to glorify the shooter or, heaven forbid, kind of create something that might create a copycat. But it's very often the case that by the time they're writing those stories, the shooter is dead or will be in prison forever. And so the idea is they should just be forgotten. The thing with the Sacklers that's interesting is that a lot of the coverage of the opioid crisis had done that, had sort of centered people whose lives had come apart because of addiction, um, but then in the corner, kind of lurking in the edges of the story would be the family that was responsible that hadn't gone away to prison and in fact was still very much, you know, right out at the forefront in society. And so part of what I wanted to do was was upend that a little bit and tell a story that was much more, I mean, there certainly are victims in the book, but much more geared towards the perpetrators. And this family, um, they have a fascinating history. I I tell the story of these three generations and it starts with these three brothers Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, who uh, grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression, and their parents had been immigrants who'd actually come over from Central and Eastern Europe at the turn of the last century. And they grew up poor, Uh, their parents didn't speak English in the home, they spoke Yiddish. And the boys all uh, were very smart and ambitious and their parents wanted them to be doctors. And so they grow up, um, go to medical school, And they're physicians, all three become psychiatrists, but they're also businessmen. They want to make a lot of money. And the vehicle for doing that will be the pharmaceutical industry and specifically uh, pharmaceutical advertising and marketing. So Arthur Sackler, the oldest of these brothers, is this kind of Don Draper of medical advertising in the 1950s and figures out how to sell drugs, not, not so much to consumers, but to doctors, how to persuade doctors to prescribe certain drugs. And they make, he makes the first big Sackler fortune actually on Valium, which he had the contract to market, um, another drug that actually ended up being quite addictive. And they had a family pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick, and it was actually after Arthur's death in 1987 that his brothers launched OxyContin, which was this groundbreaking painkiller And that the second and third generation of the Sackler family really were the ones who were kind of the, the custodians of OxyContin and what it would do.
2: I think I think it's really what one of the things that I want. I mean, the book has very many strengths, but is this kind of slow building that this you start with a family who are immigrants, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the thing that Americans are supposed to do, right, which is pull themselves up by their bootstraps and study very hard and and be, you know, entrepreneurs and all of that. They do all the things they are supposed to do right yeah. this is the and yet somehow it all goes wrong and I have to one of the things that was very striking to me actually was um so on the short list for the Bailey Gifford um along with your book there was a book about Robert Maxwell and it was really interesting reading those two books together repeatedly because you do join the judging um because it, Robert Maxwell's story in some ways was so similar that you start with this a refugee who spoke many languages, who, you know, who, who was taking, who was an opportunity taker. And in some, in some ways they ended up in such different places because the Sacklers were very secretive about their personal lives. And Robert Maxwell was, you know, secretive in some ways, but also he wanted to be in the public eye. He wanted to be seen. And yet what the system did to these, you know, is it it did the same thing, right? That the, the, the chances that the people with this attitude somehow get huge amounts of power and and i was just curious about whether you thought this was were these you know perhaps not so much maxwell but maybe there are similarities that is this about the type of person or is this about the system that encourages and rewards and incentivizes that type of behavior
3: i think it's both i think it's the alchemy of the two in combination um i think Part of what i I mean I'm glad you picked up on that because part of what I was drawn to was the almost mythical kind of Horatio Alger quality of the of the narrative in the early decades where the family's trying to make its mark and that is a you know there's a there's a long tradition of of um those kinds of American stories as you say, but to me um there is a kind of amorality embedded in that type of ambition that I wanted to bring out. And I also think that our our system and I should say, I don't I mean, I don't think this is uniquely American at all. And in fact, as, as you know, in Maxwell's case, it's a story you could just as easily tell about England. Um, but I think the system does reward chancers. And I think that the system particularly rewards the accumulation of power. There's a kind of snowballing that happens where the more money and influence and power you accumulate, the more you can accumulate. And and at the broadest level, I think this is part of the reason we see these astonishing income disparities that we see today is that the, the if you can kind of, um, it's like if you can achieve escape velocity <laughs> Uh, in terms of the economic fortunes of your family, then suddenly you'll just get this exponential kind of compounding growth in your wealth. And so what that meant for the Sacklers is that Arthur Sackler, as a child, can't afford books at school and, and talks about when he goes to medical school, stringing his books together with rubber bands. Um, and in his life, before he died in in 1987, he would make... Hundreds of millions of dollars, but then the next generations would make billions and billions. Um, and I think it gets very difficult to establish any kind of guardrails on those types of people once they've accumulated that kind of wealth. And I think that's both a function of their personalities, but also very much of the
0: system. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation, just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth.
2: And it's also connected with entitlement, because one thing we haven't really touched on yet is this thing of the patronage of the arts, you know, this idea that Arthur Sackler collected art and that was the thing that made them visible. They were visible because people wanted their money. I mean, there's this, you know, again, it's possibly a flaw in the system, that um, if you don't fund the arts through other methods, then they go to rich people and then they, you know, they sort of suck up to rich people. So where, um, how, what difference did the Sacklers make to the arts? Because you must have, you had the opportunity to talk to the museums they donated to. Did they, presumably they did genuinely make a big difference?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the there's another aspect of this story that I don't really get into in the book, but it's part of the backdrop, which is public funding for the arts has just dried up throughout this whole period of time. During these decades that I'm writing about, you're also seeing alternative public kind of cleaner public sources of funding for the arts. uh, Mm -hmm. And this is as true here as as it is there Mm -hmm. drying up. Um, And so. Listen, the Sacklers donated hundreds of millions of dollars um, in the in the UK and here and other places around the world. I mean, uh, in Israel, in France, um, in China. And that money did make a difference. And it's interesting, you know, I've I've talked to people who I think this is a harder case to make in the arts and an easier case to make in the sciences. But I've talked to people because a lot of what they did was they they gave money for cancer research, for instance. And I've talked to people who are at universities and at, at, at medical centers that received funding from the Sacklers who say, listen, a dollar is a dollar. If I'm doing cancer research, I I don't really care where it comes from. I mean, it's not gonna change the work that we're doing and, and, and we could be achieving an amazing good. So. Um, I think there's a kind of moral seriousness to something like cancer research, where people look at me and they say, stop clutching your pearls. You know, we're desperately trying to, uh, to find cures here and, and we'll take the money where we can find it. It's a hard, I think it's harder to make that case in the arts. I do. Um, but I do think that there was a, there was a point of view that some of the museums had, which is we desperately need funds. Um, They have been reliable patrons for a long period of time. And uh, so in my experience talking with these people, what that translated into was that, and this was part of my frustration, not that they would read the existing literature and dig into the investigative journalism that had been done and look at some of the studies and realize that the Sacklers Company had pled guilty to federal crimes in 2007 and paid a $600 million fine. They wouldn't do all that homework and then say I've really engaged in a rigorous manner with that and I, I nevertheless feel as though it's appropriate for us to take this money. Instead what they would say to me is oh well, I've never really looked into it what do I know I know there are accusations out there but it's a they tell me that they're just it's all they've misunderstood and it's sort of a he said she said thing. I think that it's I guess I get less, less sympathetic if the way in which you countenance the Taking the money is to put your head in the sand and not engage with publicly available facts about the family and their company.
2: Well, there's this terrible convenience about the whole thing for the people involved, isn't it? Which is that the rich person, whoever it is, wants to buy respectability. In this case, they want to. But the, the they are paid. Then this isn't this isn't altruism. Actually, yeah. they are very knowingly paying the price tag for being accepted into the upper echelons of society. And the organizations on the other side kind of go, well, we won't look and then we won't know. And then it's all right, isn't it? And it's, yeah.
3: Absolutely, I mean, and to your point, you know, Arthur Sackler's longtime lawyer said something which I quote in the book where he said, if you if you want your name on the gift, then that's not charity, that's a business deal, that's a contract. And the Sacklers always wanted their name on it. And I think in in fairness to them, Um, I feel as though that mode of philanthropic reputation laundering has reached a point where it's become like the air we breathe. And I'll give you two funny examples of this. Um, when you and I met, it was at the awards dinner for the Bailey Gifford prize And leaving aside the fact that even the Bailey Gifford Prize carries the name of a corporation, which which is donating the money for the prize with the recognition that it will be good for them in terms of PR to have their name associated with it. Throughout the dinner, people kept pausing to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation, which had paid for our meal. And then a week or two later, it, it took on a kind of even more absurd extreme. When I came back to London, because my book had been shortlisted for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year Award. But of course, it's actually the Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. And McKinsey is one of the villains in Empire of Pain because the Sacklers and Purdue hire them to help the company do this. Now, I think probably that was a situation in which um, uh, the, the judges were independent and they picked my book for the shortlist and it was what it was it was kind of a mercy for me that the book didn't win because it would have been very awkward if I had to give a speech, but even being on the shortlist, I th- there was something that it was like 10,000 pounds or something to be on the shortlist. And I had to donate that money. I mean, imagine if I took that money, imagine if I took 10,000 pounds of McKinsey's money for recognizing a book that I wrote in which it's all about this process of reputation laundering. And then the, the biggest cosmic irony is when we gather for the ceremony itself, it's at the, the, uh, the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square, and as we were all kind of eating canapes and sipping champagne, my editor pointed, and on the wall it says, the Sackler Room. So we're literally just adjacent to the Sackler Room. I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel as though this whole system, I'm telling the story of one family, but this system has evolved to a point where it's everywhere. It's inescapable
2: they're really yeah and i i i think that um in a way it's it's invisible because it's so common because you would say well who else would pay for it right because in in the world as you say at the moment there isn't you know what what has become known in this country as the magic money tree yeah. and so well there's all these rich people you know it it's it's um it's re- it's it's interesting to work out how to get ourselves out of it. I think I'd like to come back to the um, the opioids because obviously as as this family are becoming better known and making their donations to the arts and having their um, own private storage unit in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which I just find incredible. Like that was the bit that that you know that was one of the bits that just really made my draw drop. Um, but they were making decisions about how this business progressed. They knew, you know, it, you start off with these drugs that are doing well. But then they were, it's not just like, you know, the drug did well and then they just kind of sat on top and rode out the money machine. It was that they were making decisions about how to you know, they were involved in the day-to-day running of the business and who knew what and what to push and how, how knowing were they about the harm they were doing? Cause the whole thing was, if you use Oxycontin, it won't become addictive. And yet it didn't take long for that to be bust. Right. How much did they know? Do you think how much did they really know?
3: Yeah. I mean, that's the big question is what is, is the, it's the old investigative journalism, you know, what did they know and when did they know it? And, um, The first thing to say is that the Sackler family owned this corporation, but also that several members of the family actually served as executives at the corporation. And then many members of the family served on the company's board. And today... What the Sacklers say is, oh, we were just board members. We didn't really know. We were presented with information and we voted, And but you know, it was really, we weren't involved in the management of the company. And I did enough research to establish that that's just nonsense, that they not only were some of them actually executives, but the nature of the corporate governance at this particular firm was that the board was an extremely active board um that wanted to be up to date on everything and actually micromanage the company to a point where there were multiple emails that i found from different ceos of purdue pharma basically sort of writing to the board in exasperation and saying you're making it impossible for me to be the ceo and run the company because you're so maniacally interventionist so the first thing to say would be as a general matter uh the family had kind of rolled up its sleeves and was in the sandbox in terms of the business and how it was conducted day to day it was not a situation where they were just taking disbursements and occasionally voting on board measures um and then there's this idea of well well okay so then when and how did they find out so purdue pharma starts marketing oxycontin in 1996 with a claim that the drug is not addictive that it's addictive less than one percent of the time and they really kind of repeat this like a mantra and they go out. They hadn't done any studies on addictiveness. They didn't know this. It was just conjecture and almost immediately people start abusing the drug and becoming addicted and overdosing dying. I don't have the email where the smoking gun email where the Sacklers find out about that. Um, So I couldn't tell you that they knew in 1997, for instance. But I do know that there were other people at Purdue who knew as early as 1997 that there were real problems. And that makes sense because part of the way the company operated, and this would be typical for a pharma business, is they had these sales representatives all across the country um, who would go out and meet with doctors and pharmacists and nurses and so they're kind of an early warning system. They're like the canary in the coal mine, and they would send reports back. And so the chances are that pretty early on, you had word coming back to the company that there were problems. And and knowing the way the Sacklers operated, I can't imagine that nobody told them. But I but I don't have the I don't have the specific email. It's really only later. It's as of about. 2000 2001 that you start to see a real paper trail uh that implicates the family
2: well i think an important point which you you make in the book is that the um because they knew not just the sales reps data but th- those sales reps knew that there was one guy one doctor on the street somewhere in the middle of nowhere who was somehow prescribing like 100 prescriptions a day or something you know like you couldn't if you went looking for abuse that is where you would go looking you, right
3: yeah Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's funny. This is a thing that I I often think about where, um, because this is, it's not the only industry where this happens. I mean, to give you a kind of a a parallel example, in the States, gun laws um, really vary from state to state. And so you have certain states like Florida that are really lax and then other states like Illinois that have really tight gun laws. And what you end up with is a situation in which there's all these murders that happen in Illinois Illinois, with guns that were purchased in Florida and then just driven to Illinois. And what I always wonder about is the manufacturers of those guns must know that there's a disproportionate number of guns being sold in the states that have the lower regulations and that part of the explanation for that is a black market, basically, that moves. And it was the same thing with Purdue where there were certain places where as you say just demographically it didn't make any sense that you would have that much oxycontin being prescribed unless you were fueling the black market and so i think from very very early on from the earliest days they would have been able to see now did they do anything about it they did not
2: and then well then and then it sort of moves on to when people did start to find it and then there's the intentional cover up there's kind of it's really interesting because there's these layers of guilt in a way there's there's a thing that happened that happened to be a good thing. And then there's a thing that no one really just looked at. And then, the, and then, the, and then it starts to become much more deliberate. And, and this is a very secretive family in general. And actually, one of the things I wanted to ask was just how, one of the things that's impressive in the books you talk about how secretive they are. And then you show these emails that were released as, you know, occasional court cases you could, you could get at the papers. That they, this is, they, were, they went to extraordinary lengths in some cases to hide anything about what they were up to or which companies even they were part of, you know, there's this generational habit of being just, it's not anyone else's business. How, how, how did you get through that shell?
3: That's, I mean, generational habit is a great way of putting it because I do think it's part of the reason I wanted to tell the story of all three generations is that you see the origins of this back in the fifties, this kind of learned behavior that I think starts with Arthur Sackler where he had, he had all these conflicts of interest, where he was, you know, he's a part owner of a pharmaceutical company, but he was also doing research, and he also uh, had a medical advertising firm, and they ran advertisements for, um, and the and he had a he had a, a newspaper, a publishing company that was distributed free to doctors, and it would run advertisements that were handled by his advertising firm, and advertisements four drugs that he had a stake in, and it was never acknowledged that the editor of the newspaper had these different interests. And so the way he dealt with that, to say nothing of his rather Baroque personal life with multiple different women in his life, was to kind of compartmentalize and, and sort of hope that nobody would ever see the whole picture. And you see that behavior kind of carry out. I... For me, it was about, um, you know, the family didn't cooperate and they were quite menacing with me uh, in terms of having lawyers threaten me with legal action. Um, So it was quite adversarial in terms of their posture. So what I did was I found people who knew them, who were friends with them, had worked with them, had worked for the company. I found uh, housekeepers and doormen and... Yoga instructors, you know the kind, of administrative assistants, the kinds of people who, who help service the very wealthy, but who might actually be kind of invisible to a family like that. But just because they're invisible to the family doesn't mean they don't see the family from quite an intimate vantage point. Um, and then I found all these documents, you know, through through litigation. These documents had come out. These internal emails. Um, people leaked things to me, so so I had people who were on the inside who shared emails with me. Um, some really extraordinary stuff. I mean, there was a, the Mortimer-Sackler family, which is concentrated in Belgravia uh, in London. They um, they had a family WhatsApp, the way many people do, the way I do with my family, um, where you're all sending messages back and forth on the WhatsApp. And they believed that it was more secure than email. So there's actually literally WhatsApp messages where they say, remember, let's keep all this on WhatsApp, and not on email, because this way it won't ever come out. And um, it ended up, It being attached as an exhibit to a filing in a court case, and I got my my hands on it. And so that's extraordinary, because you can see this quite intimate way in which the family speaks and what they believe is an impregnable zone of privacy.
2: It is. It, it's an astonishing achievement, and I also, you know, the, the the thing that struck me again, right, many times writing was just how much, you know, the fra- the fraction that you presented the book is clearly a tiny fraction of everything that you read and poked about in, and I, I can't imagine how you're still sane, actually. <laughs> just- well, I
3: don't. I don't know that I am. But, <laughs> I, I might question the premise, but yeah.
2: <laughs> but living in somebody else's lives. So, so when coming closer to the modern day, then. Um, Well, actually, one thing before we get to that on the one of the things about the book is that it's very restrained. I mean, considering the topics that you're dealing with, these people that, you know, I can't believe anybody reads this book and empathizes with them. (laughs) You know, they are they're horrible people. I think that is that that is almost everyone's conclusion on reading this book. Horrible things happened because of horrible people. Um, And um, you do a very good job of presenting it in a very what's almost a fair-handed way, except there isn't another hand, you know, that like you're, you're very even-handed and you you don't allow yourself to get cross or aggressive. But I can't quite believe you were that Zen while oh, you were writing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. I mean, that was quite deliberate in the sense that the, um, the material itself is so shocking that I felt I made a deliberate choice early on that I wanted my narrative voice to be pretty cool, um, to not to not. I didn't want to boil over with my own indignation. I didn't want my own indignation to color what was happening. I felt much better to just sort of present it. There are certainly moments where there's a very dry sarcasm that I'm that I'm using, um, but. Um, it's funny, I think it, let me give you, so, 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 you know, I, I, wrote this book against the backdrop of the Trump years, and there's a great deal of writing about Trump that, um, in which the writer expresses just tremendous high dudgeon, uh, indignation and outrage, and the reader feels outraged, and to me, there's something kind of, There's something almost pornographic about that as it feels sort of, it it doesn't feel particularly literary to me or particularly edifying. Um, Here, I knew that the material was kind of sensational and outrageous, um, but I felt as though, uh, listen, there's almost a hundred pages of endnotes at the end of the book. And, and I was writing this in the face of legal threats. So I wanted to, um, to make it clear that I'm a pretty sober judge of this, stuff and um and hopefully kind of have the reader feel as though I'm an honest broker um and so much better to just to just show you the emails tell you what they did and what they said and have you feel the outrage than have me kind of trying to express the, my own personal outrage to you if that makes sense
2: yeah it, ma- it makes absolute sense but it's also very powerful because uh, that's that's what gives the book its power is that you feel that you're as a reader, you feel that you are—you're not being told what to think. Mm. In you know, you are being told a story, but you get to make your own conclusions. It's just that everyone, see, everyone I've spoken to, came to the same conclusion. Roughly the same
3: conclusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are it. Yeah. Um. So, so actually, I don't think we're giving anything away here. To say that one one of the interesting things about the book was that it was actually published just before the end of the story, mm. which was I think the right thing to do, and probably you were sick of it by then. But there was a court case over this last summer. So so perhaps tell us a little bit about the unraveling because because there is, you know, this the family carry on in this state of, you know, they're just impervious to everything. Teflon coated, the law they sort of make the lawsuits go away or nobody, you know, they fight they get sued but no one really pays attention. And it and then it starts to unravel. What happens then?
3: So there's a few things. I mean one is that um uh, there are a couple of, of of women who are sort of the heroes of the book in the last third of the book. One is Maura Healy, who was the attorney general in Massachusetts. And at that point, pretty much every state was suing Purdue Pharma, the company, but not the family that had owned it. And Maura Healy was the first prosecutor to push through that and say, no, 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 I want to go after the family. Um, And so she did. And then a whole series of states followed her lead and suddenly they were kind of in the spotlight in a way that they hadn't been. And it was partially through her lawsuit that I was able to get hold of a lot of this documentation because she produced it. It was important for her to make it public. Um, And then there's another very unlikely hero in this story, which is the photographer Nan Golden, who's a very celebrated American photographer um, who became addicted to OxyContin. And, um, she was in recovery for her Oxycontin addiction in 2017, when she read this article in the New Yorker that I had written about the Sacklers, which was my kind of first foray into this subject. And she was, um, she was really incensed and she wanted to do something. And so it's funny, I remember meeting with her, um, for tea and she, she told me she said, I'm gonna start a movement. We're gonna start a protest movement. We're gonna get their names taken down from museums. She was had a head of steam. And um and I didn't take her seriously. I thought there was something kind of retro about all this. I just thought it was a start a movement. What are you what are you talking about? I mean I, I was I was broadly supportive, but did but um but um I didn't think she had a chance. And I uh, boy I was I re- I was so wrong. I mean she she went out and she started these, because she's a photographer, she has this incredible eye for spectacle. And so she had these amazing protests where they went to the Metropolitan Museum and in uh, New York City, and they had made all of these um, pill bottles, uh, a thousand of them. And they threw them into the reflecting pool there. And they went to the Guggenheim and they had these little um, fake prescriptions. And they if you know that Guggenheim has that kind of snaking white staircase around the central atrium. And they they lined that staircase and then threw 6,000 of these um, prescriptions out. So it's this kind of cloud of paper. And they had told a photographer to be on the ground and point the camera up and photograph the cloud coming down. And of course, that photo then ends up in The New York Times. Um, they went to London and had a die-in at the Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, which the Sacklers have a very close relationship with. Um, And that worked. I mean, the amazing thing is that worked. So you end up in this kind of strange situation where the end game for Purdue is they end up in bankruptcy court because there's all these lawsuits, but the family has quietly been siphoning money out of the company. So they took more than $10 billion out of the company and then they said, oh, the company doesn't have any money anymore, so we'll just put it in bankruptcy court rather than deal with all those lawsuits. Um, But where the the shame of it had finally caught up with them. And so the end game of the bankruptcy court is that the family has put up, they're, they're saying they'll give $6 billion, um, which seems like a lot of money, but I would argue in, in the full context of what they took themselves and then also the damage they caused is actually not enough, that they would put up $6 billion to help remediate the opioid crisis. They will get a kind of permanent... Uh, immunity from any further civil lawsuits over this.
2: So they bought their way into the situation, they'll buy their way out of it. That's basically Absolutely. the
3: attitude. Yeah, and, and, and to your point about the book kind of ending a bit, ending before the um, before the final outcome, I knew how it would end. I mean, it's I didn't know what the number would be that they would pay, but I knew, and I say it at the end of the book, that the broad outlines of this would be that the sackers would pay a sum of money none of them would go to jail, and they would be insulated from future litigation. And so that's kind of where it ends. But the, but I will say it's a small thing, but I mean, the name keeps coming down. It came down at the Met uh, a couple of months ago. It came down at the British Museum. Um, they said after, after a three-decade relationship with the family, we're taking the Sackler name down. So that continues to happen, and there's a kind of, um, I think there's a kind of infamy in which that name will now live.
2: So I guess the thing as a society is, you know, you read this book, you look at this situation, you go, well, let's not have that happen again. <laughs> so what, what do you think it's, first of all, do you think it's possible to stop it happening again? And secondly, what do we need to do better? What are the lessons here?
3: Um, oh, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you describe the book in those terms because I thought of it as both a story in the kind of immediate sense of, of a story about one very bad family But in a broader sense, about the system that enables them. And um, I worry that a lot of the conditions that allowed this to happen are still in place. Um, I mean, I think there's any number of things from a a regulatory point of view that should happen. I think. I think tighter regulation of the pharmaceutical industry in particular is important. I think there's a real danger of regulatory capture, Um, just a kind of closeness that happens between the industry and the regulators. I mean, there's a particularly egregious story I tell in the book about how the guy who approved OxyContin at the Food and Drug Administration ends up going to work for Purdue Pharma. So that's that's a sort of particularly alarming case. but I also think that more generally, you know, this is a drug that generated $35 billion. And so that buys a lot of influence over a long period of time. So I think, you know, broadly speaking, trying to figure out more ways to have kind of independent regulation um, that is quite tough on the claims that can be made for these drugs is important. But but there's another thing that's just a baseline thing. And I think I think incredibly significant, not just in this case, but, but beyond, which is when particularly in the U.S., when you have people who are involved in the retail sale of small amounts of illegal drugs, we throw them in prison for long periods of time. We have an excruciatingly punitive system. This is the reason we have two million people behind bars in this country. It's largely driven by the war on drugs. And we can argue about the war on drugs and just sort of bracket that for a moment. What is shocking to me is, is that when it comes to uh, conduct like the Sacklers and and the, the supposedly licit pharmaceutical industry, people don't go to jail, executives don't go to jail and that's not unique to pharma. Across the board, if there are white collar criminals engaged in criminal activity, what happens here is that the firm itself will pay a fine and take a guilty plea but I say in the book, it's as if the firm is like a driverless car. You get these crazy things, Purdue Pharma um, pled guilty again in 2020 and they didn't even name any executives. And so I think for me, one big thing is if you want to change the behavior of corporate executives, then you should throw some of them in prison and, and have future executives know that if they, if they engage in this kind of reckless conduct for money, that there's a danger that they'll have to leave their families and go away. Um and I think that that actually would change the way they behave. I don't think it's enough of a um, of a uh, a disincentive to think, oh, someday my my company might have to pay a big fine and do a guilty plea, but I'll be okay.
2: I think, I think it's coming up in a lot of things. I certainly hear it in tech, there are tech cases at the moment, you know, people have made uh, case they've claimed that things can do things they couldn't do. And there is, there has started to be perhaps some of them are actually going to carry the can for what they did, but um, okay. maybe. Um, so just finally then, because we are running out of time a little bit, which is a shame. Um, how has all of this left you? You know, you immerse yourself in this book for, in this story for years of your life, you know, and, Now you're kind of spat out the other end of it and you're talking to people like me and all of this kind of stuff. But you, in dealing with all of this, I mean, you've had to deal with some pretty nasty things and take responsibility for sharing that story. How is, how has all of that left you at the end of all of this?
3: Oh, I mean, I'm all, I'm all turned around, but, but listen, there's been a global pandemic too, right? I mean, these are strange days. I think we're all losing our minds. So it's, it's hard for me to, um, it's hard for me to tease out how much of my, general loss of sanity is is uh, attributable to the book and that whole experience and how much of it is just our our uh our prevailing condition um i mean listen i it's been hugely gratifying for me to see the book um getting read to see people talking about it um uh to, to know that it's um you know it's hard to measure the impact of these things and i and i certainly wouldn't want to overstate the significance of it but but you write a book and, and you don't know, honestly, whether, whether it will, um, uh, be read or not. And, and to see people resonate with it has been really gratifying for me after what was quite a long slog. So I, I'm, I'm very happy to kind of come out and, and bang the drum for the book and, and, and hope that, um, Know, hope that people will look at the story of the Sacklers and, and, and um, engage with it just as a story, because I think it's a fascinating story, but also think about the, as a morality tale, I think it, it has, it has quite a bit to tell us about some of the sort of dangerous um, tendencies in the society that, that we live in now.
2: It is a very modern morality tale. Um, we have to finish that. The book is Empire of Pain by Patrick Keith. I absolutely remen- recommend it to everybody and anybody i think everyone should read it um just because there is so much to learn from it in so many different ways patrick it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you for joining thank us you, on Ellen. book shambles
3: really enjoyed it thank you
1: thanks very much for listening hope you enjoyed the episode patrick's book is out now from all your favorite independent bookshops and obviously you can still get copies of helen's two books storm in a teacup and bubbles uh, signed editions available from the cosmic shambles bookshop at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop or slash shop actually because we've we've merged them together so it's cosmicshambles.com slash shop thanks to our patreon supporters patreon.com slash bookshambles i hope to see you at nine lessons this coming weekend great review like five stars on apple podcasts and beyond back next week with another new
0: episode until then take care and stay safe bye for now Josie robbins bookshambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions